When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. We have some incredible stuff to cover this week in the Book of Mormon, including one of my favorite chapters of all time, Ether chapter 12. And to introduce it, I want to give you a bit of a test and something of a tour. And they both have to do with the concept behind a Hall of Fame. So here's the test. Which Hall of Fame would you find in Springfield, Massachusetts? If you're a basketball fan and you chose that, then you're right. What about Cooperstown, New York? That's where you'd find the Baseball Hall of Fame. Canton, Ohio, anyone? There's the Football Hall of Fame. Now, if you're not just interested in sports, there are other Halls of Fame as well. For eight years, I lived in Nashville, Tennessee. And sadly, I never took the opportunity to go visit the, you probably guessed it, Country Music Hall of Fame. If country's not your style, then head north to Cleveland, Ohio, and that's where you'd find the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Anyone know which Hall of Fame is found in Charlotte, North Carolina? The NASCAR Hall of Fame is there. Or how about Fort Worth, Texas? You'll find the Bull Riding Hall of Fame there. Seems appropriate. St. Louis, Missouri, anyone? That's the World Chess Hall of Fame. And the next time you're visiting the Sacred Grove, swing over to Rochester, New York, and you'll find the Toy Hall of Fame. There seem to be halls of fame for practically everything out there. Now for the tour, imagine what you typically see when you walk through a Hall of Fame. There's little alcoves or a room dedicated to a certain time period, whatever it might be. And typically, there is some kind of display. The name, a bust of the famous athlete or entertainer, for example. Often there's some paraphernalia there. Someone's bat or cleats or ball, their guitar or their stage outfit, whatever it might be. And usually it's that paraphernalia and perhaps a plaque or some kind of an explanation of what it all represents that gives you a sense of what it was that brought that person into the Hall of Fame to begin with. What did they do to deserve this kind of honor? Well, Ether chapter 12 is the Hall of Fame for Faith, Book of Mormon edition. I say Book of Mormon edition because the Bible has its own Hall of Fame as well, and that's Hebrews chapter 11. Now in that one, the book of scripture they had was the Old Testament. So even though it's in the New Testament, it's the Old Testament edition of the Faith Hall of Fame. And the people that are in it are incredible. As you read through Hebrews 11, you do get a sense of walking down the hallways and seeing a bust of Abraham and Sarah and an explanation of what they did that showed their faith to the point of induction among this incredible crowd. You see the ark of bulrushes that baby Moses floated down the Nile in. You see a sling, maybe a replica, of what David used when he defeated Goliath. It's an incredible chapter to study. If you were just to sprint down the hallways of that chapter and have the quickest tour imaginable, you'd see displays for Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets. The list could go on. 
But if you took the time to study each display and try to make sense of what it was that that person or those people did to receive induction into this Hall of Fame, you'd notice things like this. They sacrificed. They prepared. They obeyed. They received strength. They blessed others. They resisted temptations. They suffered afflictions. They forsook the world. They obtained the promised land. Near the exit of that Hall of Fame, there's a set of verses that just sums up the whole concept. They subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And then the writer of Hebrews inserts this phrase in parentheses, as if he was muttering something under his breath as he walked you to the exit of the Hall of Fame. Of whom the world was not worthy. That's why they're in the Hall of Fame, and so many others are not. These people had such faith that it made the world unworthy of them, and yet they shared their faith with that unworthy world. I am so grateful for those who occupy the halls of this Faith Hall of Fame. And to study those who Moroni includes in the Book of Mormon's version of the Faith Hall of Fame, I hope we leave the exhibit whispering the same words under our breath, of whom the world was not worthy. Now the idea for this Faith Hall of Fame, which is Moroni's, Ether 12 is his chapter, emerges from a message that Ether includes right at the beginning. Remember we met him last week in the very last verse of Ether chapter 11. We'll meet Ether more specifically in the second part of this lesson. But in chapter 12 verse 2, we discover that he is a prophet of the Lord. Now we've seen a lot of those in the book of Ether. And every time they appear, they are crying repentance and warning the people of an impending destruction if they choose not to repent of their sins. Now Ether's message, like his prophetic predecessors, is very similar. But there is one really important difference. Verse 3, he exhorted the people to believe in God unto repentance, lest they should be destroyed. You see that all-important addition? It wasn't simply repent of your sins lest you be destroyed. That's what we've seen over and over in this book already. But rather, believe in God unto repentance so that you won't be destroyed. He emphasizes that focal point at the end of the verse, saying unto them that by faith all things are fulfilled. So you see Ether's shift in emphasis? Amulek does this beautifully in Alma 34. Four times in three verses, he uses the phrase, faith unto repentance. We understand that from the fourth article of faith, the doctrine of Christ, that the first principles and ordinances of the gospel are, first, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, which then grows into, second, repentance, and then third and fourth, baptism in the Holy Ghost. But the need to repent grows out of our faith in Jesus Christ. The better we know him, the more we recognize how far we've fallen short of him, and the more we rely upon his grace to make up that gap. So rather than simply crying repentance, which is always important, Ether takes one step back and focuses primarily on faith. It's not just the behavioral repentance, it's the belief-based faith. And like President Packer has taught, true doctrine changes behavior, 
And since all these prior prophets have been teaching behavior, you have to repent of your sins. Perhaps here's Ether realizing, I need to take one step back and teach faith in Jesus Christ. If they have that, repentance will naturally follow. Ether's focus on faith is beautifully summarized in verse 4. This verse is such a masterpiece. Wherefore, whoso believeth in God, there's our faith, might with surety hope for a better world. And if there was anyone who would be hoping for a better world, it was Ether. And I could add, it was Moroni. Those two are parallel prophets, the final messenger of their civilization. We could even say their dispensation. Their own world was coming crashing down. But to place their hope in a better world because they were able to place their faith in Jesus Christ? Ether continues, Yea, even a place at the right hand of God. Elder Maxwell distinguished between what he called proximate hopes and ultimate hope. Proximate meaning near, things that we hope for in the day-to-day, as compared to ultimate hope, the one far off. The Hall of Fame in Hebrews seems to suggest that idea, as these people were pilgrims and strangers upon the earth, but looking for a far country, some distant desire, a better world to come. Ultimately, a place at the right hand of God. And with that ultimate hope fixed firmly in place, proximate hopes can kind of come or go. We're more content to leave those with the will of God because the ultimate hope can be realized. Again, he repeats, which hope cometh of faith. That's where it comes from. It's faith to hope. The order there is important. We'll see the third link in a second. But that hope which comes of faith maketh an anchor to the souls of men, which would make them sure and steadfast. Can you sense Ether seeing his people being pulled away by the strong currents that the adversary is pushing in their direction? The Jaredite people were being swept downstream towards the waterfall where they would come crashing against the rocks below. What they needed more than anything was an anchor to keep them sure and steadfast. An anchor that would dig into the rock of their Redeemer and keep them from being pulled astray. You remember it was Mormon back in Mormon chapter 5 who talked about his people, again, parallel group to what Ether is seeing in his own, that they were led about by Satan as a vessel is tossed about upon the waves without sail or anchor or without anything wherewith to steer her. Paul warns about being tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Sound a little like the secret combinations we've been studying? Those like the daughter of Jared that were exceedingly expert and making things look exceedingly fair? That's the slight of men. That's cunning craftiness. And it ends up carrying us about with every wind of false doctrine that the adversary blows in our direction. We need an anchor to keep from being blown about by it. James says something similar. In the verse that follows, that all-important verse that spurred the restoration, after assuring us that we could ask of God any time that we lacked wisdom, James then adds, But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. It's in the face of those waves and winds that make us waver, that we need an anchor to hold us firmly in place. And that anchor is faith. I mentioned last week that story from Acts 27 about the shipwreck that Paul experiences. 
And when that ship was first about to fall upon the rocks, the account says that they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. Have you ever experienced that dark night of the soul where you just wish for dawn to come, for light to return, for a reassurance that all will be well? Well, in the meantime, what do you do? You cast anchors out of the stern, everyone that you can find, anything that will tie you to the rock of the Redeemer. It is our faith in Christ that founds our ultimate hope for a better world. It is our faith in Christ that ties us to him and makes us sure and steadfast. And it is that faith in him which leads to that hope, which then leads to the charity hinted at in the final phrase of verse 4. Always abounding in good works. We're moved to serve. We're moved to lift. We're moved to love. All because of that hope in a better world that we feel motivated to help bring about. And what's that motivation come from? From faith. Faith in Christ. And best of all, with our faith in Him, instead of simply in ourselves or in the positive potential of humanity, there's no hypocrisy here. There's no self-service There's no ulterior motives. Notice the last phrase of verse 4, being led to glorify God. He's the one that deserves the credit here. He's the one in whom we placed our faith. What an incredible message from the prophet Ether. And it gives us a taste of what he may have been hinting at in verse 5. It came to pass that Ether did prophesy great and marvelous things unto the people. Again, compare that to the prophecies that we've seen throughout Ether from the other prophets that have come before. Now, I'm sure they said other more positive things as well, but what's preserved in Scripture is always these dire warnings against destruction that is imminent. Now, nobody knew just how imminent that destruction was better than Ether. He was going to witness it all firsthand, but he seemed to approach things far more positively. Instead of just crying repentance, he cried faith unto repentance. And instead of just warning them of the destruction that they were headed to, he taught them great and marvelous things. He prophesied those things to the people. Hope for a better world. We can get there. We can solve these problems through the power of Jesus Christ. We just have to place our faith in him. Unfortunately for the people and ultimately for Ether, one of the key elements of faith is that it isn't perfect knowledge. It isn't proof. It isn't empirical. That's one of the first things you see on a big plaque at the entrance of the Hall of Fame for Faith in the book of Hebrews. Now, faith is the substance. Joseph Smith translation corrects that to assurance. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Again, we'd scratch our heads. Wait, if it's not seen, then how can there be evidence? Well, that's exactly it. That's the paradox that lies at the heart of faith. There's evidence, but it's of the spiritual kind, not the empirical. So at the end of verse 5, even though Ether has come across as so beautifully positive, prophesying great and marvelous things, far beyond the repent or die Jeremiads of previous prophets, unfortunately, they did not believe. And the reason why? Because they saw them not. I need evidence that can be seen not evidence of things that cannot be. I need proof, not mere assurances of the things that I'm hoping for. But that's not faith. It doesn't ask of us much. It doesn't draw upon deeper wellsprings of belief. 
It doesn't make demands on decisions that are against the odds. It doesn't require us to exercise agency to the same degree. It doesn't introduce us to our real selves. It doesn't introduce us to God. Faith does all of those things. That's why faith has to be at the beginning. Now, it's at this point that Moroni interrupts the narrative. He'll get back to it in chapter 13. But here he wants to stop right where Ether left off and lead us through a walk of the Book of Mormon's Faith Hall of Fame, as well as Moroni's explanation of why it's so important for us to exercise our faith to the point that we might join the ranks of those who are installed there. He says in verse 6, And now I, Moroni, would speak somewhat concerning these things. I want to talk about faith. Dad interrupted the narrative all the time with his brief, and thus we seize. Occasionally, much longer explanations of things he was seeing in the story. Well, I hope you'll excuse me for following my father's example and doing the same. And it will last for the rest of this chapter. He begins by confirming Ether's view of faith, basically by reinstalling the same kind of plaque that lay outside the Hall of Fame in Hebrews. I would show unto the world that faith is things which are hoped for and not seen. Wherefore, dispute not because ye see not, for ye receive no witness until after the trial of your faith. Can you sense Moroni just wanting to come to Ether's rescue? He's watching this unfold as he's abridging these plates and seeing that Ether's message is being rejected because people can't see it and touch it and taste it. They can't weigh it. They can't measure it. It's non-scientific. It's non-empirical. We're back to the story I told you earlier from Gulliver's Travels of those blind scientists trying to mix paint color by touch and by smell. It's just not going to work. And so this second witness, Moroni, joining Ether, you're not going to know that way. You've got to learn to know this way. It is a divine epistemology. And the world's way of coming to knowledge pales in comparison because it doesn't build character along the way. This way does. So don't fight it. Don't dispute it just because you can't see it now. You will see it then but you'll finally know what to do with what you see because you develop the eye of faith along the way. Moroni's takeaway from this, the lesson he most wants us to learn is what he said at the end of verse six. You will not receive a witness until after the trial of your faith. That is such an important principle for us to understand. Now I talk about faith crisis all the time because of my doctoral work in anti-religious rhetoric. I study these kinds of things all the time and how secularism is used to try to force faith into a corner. But I remember once getting a little bit of kind and gentle pushback from someone who had been to a fireside where I spoke about faith crisis. And he simply said, you know, I see the relevance of this topic. I'm grateful that more people seem to be talking about it and writing about it because this is what we're up against in these last days. However, the phrase, Faith crisis or crisis of faith is non-scriptural. So why do we always label it that? The scriptural phrase is not crisis of faith, but rather trial of faith. And there's a different feeling, a different spirit to that. That it's not just, I'm in faith crisis. It's simply, ah, my faith is being tried. It's being tested, it's being proven, it's being stretched. It's being strengthened if I'll allow that to be the result. That's the sense that Peter gives us when he says that the trial of your faith, not the crisis, the trial, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, 
might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. You see what he's saying there? If gold, which is mere metal, is worth being tried in the fire, then how much more worth it is it to take your faith, far more precious than gold, and try it in the fire as well? That's what purifies it. That's what refines it. That's what burns away the dross. And that requires some heat. That requires some trying. I've talked about this elsewhere, that faith follows the trajectory of creation, fall, atonement. And it's that fall stage where faith is truly being tried. What we thought we saw in the first stage, back in the innocence of Eden, isn't quite so clear down here east of Eden. But as that faith is tried and purified and refined, we move forward, up the ascent towards the atonement, with the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. We believe in a fortunate fall when we speak of Adam and Eve. We're the only church that does. Well, do we have the faith to see trials of faith in a similar light? That that quote-unquote fall might actually be a fortunate one because our faith is being tried in the fire, far more precious than gold. It is that tried, purified, refined faith, far more than the untested kind we started with, that brings real praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. For when Christ returns, will he find faith upon the earth? And if he does, what kind of faith will he find? That's one of the most important contributions Moroni makes to this discussion. He keeps bringing up things that will prove that thesis statement that we do not receive witnesses until after the trial of our faith because tried and tested faith is the kind that the Lord wants to see in us. He makes that clear again later in this chapter in verse 17 and 18. He's speaking of a specific case in 17, but the principle applies across the board. Through every hall of the Hall of Fame, they obtained not the promise until after their faith. And again, this universalization of this principle, verse 18, neither at any time hath any wrought miracles until after their faith. Wherefore, they first believed in the Son of God. Why do you think faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the first principle of the gospel? It's the one from which everything else grows. No real miracle ever occurs until after faith in Jesus Christ. So believe first and then receive the promises. Look for those kinds of principles in every display that we see today in the Faith Hall of Fame. Think before and after with every exhibit. Before is always faith, and after is whatever came of it. So let's go back and start seeing that. Our tour is about to begin. Verse 7, first exhibit. For it was by faith, so now we have the before, and here's the after, that Christ showed himself unto our fathers after he had risen from the dead. He showed not himself unto them until after they had faith in him. Wherefore, it must needs be that some had faith in him, for he showed himself not unto the world. See what he's saying at the end there? Some saw him and some didn't. And while repentance definitely was one of the things that distinguished between the two groups, but what Moroni brings out is it wasn't just repentance and righteousness, it was faith and faithfulness. Some believed that Jesus would come 
And after the trial of that faith, those days of darkness and destruction, he did come and they did see. In fact, that fulfillment of their faith in 3 Nephi 11 was the second such example in 3 Nephi. Remember the one in chapter 1, as they were waiting and hoping against hope for the sign of the birth of Jesus Christ. Those who believed that Christ would come against the odds, faced fear with faith, and didn't deny even when their life was hanging in the balance. So whether in their case or in our own, believe first and then see the Savior. See him come into your life. See him bring you to life when death is what's staring you in the face. See the light and life of the world. Descend into your life to push out the darkness and destruction. But that coming of Christ to you must be preceded by your faith in him. That first display from verse 7 describes the coming of Christ. The second display in verse 8 describes his mission. Because of the faith of men, he has shown himself unto the world. So not just his showing himself among the Nephites. He's showing himself unto the world. In what way? By glorifying the name of the Father and preparing a way that thereby others might be partakers of the heavenly gift, that they might hope for those things which they have not seen. This seems so much more broad than what he described back in verse 7. He comes into the world, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. To do what? To glorify the name of the Father. What does Jesus say about that in the New Testament? It is through his atonement, his sacrifice, his crucifixion, his resurrection, that he glorifies the name of the Father. It's through his atoning sacrifice that he prepares a way. He is that way, whereby we could become partakers of the heavenly gift. This is atonement, and it came about because of our faith. The faith of men and women. The faith exercised in premortality, in that war in heaven when the Father asked, Whom shall I send? And one holy hand was raised, who said, Here am I, send me. Against the odds, in the face of the accusation of the accuser of our brethren. That's what Lucifer is described as in the book of Revelation. Against those accusations that were leveraging the risk inherent in the Father's plan, we exercised our faith in that promise. Jesus will be able to do it. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah that has prevailed to open the book with the seven seals. That's the sense you get in Revelation chapter 5, where weeping turns into singing because we exercised faith that Jesus would be able to perform this work. He will prepare a way. He will glorify the name of the Father. He will make available to each of us the heavenly gift Moroni summarized it so beautiful in verse 9, Wherefore we may also have hope and be partakers of the gift, if ye will but have faith. You see him echoing what Ether had said back in verse 4? That hope, ultimate hope, hope to be partakers of God's heavenly gift, that comes from faith. Faith to hope to charity. We will see the order explained incredibly well by Moroni's father, Mormon, once we get to Moroni chapter 7. That is another masterpiece. And it teaches this order of faith to hope to charity better than anything else I've seen in Scripture. Stay tuned. Good times ahead. 
So what are the before and after pictures at that second display? Before, have faith in Christ. That's always the before picture. And what's the after here? Believe in Christ and then watch the plan of salvation unfold in your life. Watch hope come, ultimate hope to be made a partaker of the heavenly gift, which God has already wrapped up for you. In fact, it's not even wrapped. It's unwrapped, extended before us, there for the taking if we will simply have faith in Christ. Verse 10, the third display. Behold, it was by faith that they of old were called after the holy order of God. All those in the past who exercised God's divine authority, his sons and his daughters commissioned to perform work in his name. This would be a composite photograph of unnumbered multitudes there who have occupied their space in the Faith Hall of Fame because they believed and their faith in Christ was what enabled them to be called after that holy order. Believe first and then the callings come. Believe and then come opportunities to exercise the power and authority of God. Verse 11 suggests an interesting exhibit. Next in the display case is the Law of Moses. And it's placed side by side with its successor, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. You see how they're side by side in 11? But they're both brought about by faith. By faith was the Law of Moses given. But in the gift of his Son hath God prepared a more excellent way. And it is by faith that it hath been fulfilled. So both the Law and the Gospel, Moses and Christ, both of those came about by faith. Now, typically, we only associate faith with the gospel, not so much with the law of Moses, but think about it. What was God's ultimate goal? To bring us into the celestial promised land, not just the Canaanite version, but as we've seen repeatedly, to achieve a Zion location, you have to achieve a Zion lifestyle beforehand. And as the golden calf experience proved, they weren't ready for it. But God in his mercy at least gives them something, a step in the right direction, a stepping stool, a schoolmaster to bring them unto Christ. I have faith in them that they can make it, that they can eventually, ultimately live that level, that celestial law. In the meantime, though, let's give them a law of Moses that's at least higher than the telestial level of living they experienced in Egypt. Help them become terrestrial on the way to celestial. And you can sense faith on God's part, faith on Moses' part, faith on the Israelites' part, that we can do better than we've done. And faith in the law of Moses suggests faith in everything that that law, every wit, as Amulek says, that points towards the atonement of Jesus Christ. That is the more excellent way. And faith brought the first step, and faith fulfilled the second. This is faith in each step up the staircase, almost a faith to faith to parallel the grace to grace that we see in Doctrine and Covenants 93. So believe first, and then the steps appear. The line upon line, precept upon precept, you can do this. You can be better than you've been. Learn the commandments and begin to live them. Learn the gospel and begin to accept the change of nature that it provides. Every step along this excellent way is paved by faith. Verse 12, if there be no faith among the children of men, God can do no miracle among them. Wherefore, he showed not himself until after their faith. 
showing his hand through the miracles that he performed. You will not see them until after your faith is proven. So believe first and then let the miracles occur. He'll repeat the same idea in verse 16. Even all they who wrought miracles wrought them by faith. Even those who were before Christ and also those who were after. Interesting that Moroni would distinguish the two. He's living as an A.D. saint as he's writing mostly about B.C. saints. The book of Hebrews reflects the same divide. Old Testament B.C. saints occupying the corridors, but a New Testament A.D. saint acting as your tour guide. Seems to suggest, in my mind at least, that there are those who have faith before Jesus even came and those who have faith afterwards. Now you'd think that, well, wouldn't it only be faith in the first instance? Those that come after Jesus have much more historical proof that he lived. But remember, proof and knowledge is a different thing than faith and assurance. So this is not historical hindsight saying, well, yes, Jesus must have lived. This is not some cognitive checking of the box to accept the fact that he existed. It's still relational. It's still moral and agency. It's all, am I choosing him? Am I trusting in him? Whether it's faith before he comes or faith after he comes, it's still faith. I think you and I who live as A.D. saints recognize this. It may be easier for us to accept empirical evidence that a Jesus of Nazareth existed. But do we have faith in him so that miracles can continue to flow from him into our lives, even for us A.D. saints? Now go back to verse 13 where we left off on the tour and the display cases become much more specific to the Book of Mormon now. Verse 13, Behold, it was the faith of Alma and Amulek that caused the prison to tumble to the earth. We see that clearly back in Alma 14, where Alma prays, O Lord, give us strength according to our faith which is in Christ, even unto deliverance. And they broke the cords with which they were bound. Later in that chapter, verse 28, Alma and Amulek came forth out of the prison, and they were not hurt, for the Lord had granted unto them power according to their faith which was in Christ. Can you get a sense there? As you're looking at this display, the, the busts of Alma and Amulek there, frayed ropes where the cords were broken, a few broken stones, rubble from the prison as it collapsed around them. If you look at the plaque next to the display, it even includes a much earlier verse of scripture, the thesis statement of the Book of Mormon itself from 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 20, where Nephi says that one of his purposes in writing is to show unto us latter-day readers that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. Doesn't that describe Alma and Amulek's escape perfectly? Tender mercies, power of deliverance. But what lies at the center of that scripture? Because of their faith, they chose Jesus, and therefore were chosen by him to make them mighty unto the power of deliverance. First, believe. Then, go out from bondage. Be freed from the chains of addiction. Come out. Be free. It all begins with your faith in Christ. Come down the hallway. The next exhibit is another beautiful one. 
Verse 14, Behold, it was the faith of Nephi and Lehi, not son and father, brother and brother, that wrought the change upon the Lamanites, that they were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. Remember in Helaman 5, when they are in prison, so similar to what we just saw with Alma and Amulek, and as all those in the prison are under this cloud of darkness, until Aminadab tells those in the darkness of the prison to repent and cry unto the voice, even until ye shall have faith in Christ. As soon as they did, they were encircled about by a pillar of fire. The Holy Spirit came down and entered their hearts, and the voice from heaven came, saying, Peace, peace be unto you, because of your faith in my well-beloved. So what do we learn from that exhibit? First, believe, and then receive the Spirit into your life. Be baptized by that cleansing fire. Find light that pierces the darkness and peace that reassures you. Even when in prison, the Spirit will come. It's the fourth part of the fourth article of faith. But where does it all start? With the first, with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 15, another famous display. Behold, it was the faith of Ammon and his brethren, which wrought so great a miracle among the Lamanites. Can you see the faces of these four brothers there, this part of the Faith Hall of Fame? Perhaps we see Ammon's sling or his sword under glass as part of this display. Definitely not any of the arms that he cut off when using it. After all, there's no age restriction in this Hall of Fame. We want the children to be able to come through. But to see that it was their faith that did this, faith in their own repentance and conversion, faith in the possibility that the Lamanites could be converted as well. They went, they faced those fears because of their faith in Christ. Even when Ammon was teaching King Lamoni, listen to what he said, a portion of that spirit dwelleth in me, as he's talking about the great spirit, which giveth me knowledge and also power according to my faith. I'm here, King Lamoni, because of my faith. I had power to defend your flocks because of my faith. I know that you and your people can be changed and cleansed because of my faith in Jesus Christ. So for Ammon, for his brothers, for all of us who are trying to be missionaries like he was, first believe and then change people's lives. Rely upon that power of Christ to do the changing. I remember teaching an institute class one semester where we were really tackling all the tricky parts of church history. And I kept telling my students, if you have friends who are struggling in their faith, bring them to class. And one day, a couple of hours before class began that night, I got a text from a student, awesome, awesome young man. And he simply said in his text, I'm bringing a bunch of my inactive roommates. Tonight better be good. And I could just sense from him this, this okay, I'm going to do this. I'm bringing them. You said that we could, but they need to be fortified. They have difficult questions. And I just texted him back and said, don't worry. I'm not feeling any pressure here. What I'm feeling instead is faith, yours. Thank you for exercising faith in inviting them to come. Thank you for believing that changes could happen in their lives, in their understanding. First believe and then change people's lives. Missionaries do that every day. Now keep coming down the hallway. The last display had four figures, the sons of Mosiah. Now we see three. Verse 17, it was by faith that the three disciples obtained a promise that they should not taste of death. 
and they obtained not the promise until after their faith. Honestly, there's no way of knowing that was going to happen until it did. As you see, the other nine all reach that 72nd birthday, and you outlive them. Your faith preceded that miracle. So in their case, or in a different way in our own, first believe, and then conquer death. I will always be touched by the memories of the first Easter I spent with my wife, as we testified to each other of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and admittedly, hers was so much more powerful than mine, because hers was so much more personal than mine. My wife lost her mother to leukemia when she was eight, and lost her brother to a car accident when she was 15. My wife understood and experienced death in ways that I never had, but as a result, she understood and experienced life like I didn't, particularly the life promised through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. These three Nephites could stare death in the face and know that Christ had overcome it for them. Well, in a different way, we can do the same. Death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. It has been for my wife. It can be for all of us. But we'll never obtain that promise. It might be offered us. It has been. But we won't accept it until after our faith allows us to. Keep reading. Verse 19. This is another composite exhibit. Hard to distinguish specific faces in the crowd. There were many whose faith was so exceedingly strong, even before Christ came, who could not be kept from within the veil, but truly saw with their eyes the things which they had beheld with an eye of faith, and they were glad. Beautiful understatement there at the end. Think about that. They saw with the eyes of faith first, and then later they saw with physical eyes the things they'd already seen spiritually. I love how Elder Bednar describes spiritual and physical creation in terms of our daily prayers. That in the morning, when we give that morning prayer, we are spiritually creating the day. We get that sense from the book of Abraham's account of creation, that that version was the spiritual creation of the earth, the plan of God, as he lays out what this plan of salvation is going to entail. Leave it to Moses or Genesis for the plan to become actual work, the spiritual to become the physical. Again, morning prayer, spiritual creation of our day. And then throughout the day, what do we do? We begin to see with the physical eye what we saw that morning with our eye of faith in the prayer. We work hand in hand with God to make that happen, to bring physical out of the spiritual. And then what are our evening prayers? The chance for us to return and report on the creation that took place that day. And throughout our lives, day after day, spiritually creating in the morning and then physically creating throughout the day and then returning and reporting that night and then resting up so we can have another day's work tomorrow, eventually God will say of our creation, what he said of his, that it is very good. No wonder we can be glad with that. It's that level of faith that creates things. It's that level of faith that parts the veil. They could not be kept within it because they'd already seen with the eye of faith, what was on the other side. You see, he gives us the example of that, the ultimate one, in verse 20. Behold, we have seen in this record that one of these was the brother of Jared. 
So there is one face that stands out in this display in the Faith Hall of Fame. For so great was his faith in God that when God put forth his finger, he could not hide it from the sight of the brother of Jared because of the word which he had spoken unto him, which word he had obtained by faith. See the point he's trying to make? Had already seen the Lord's finger with the eye of faith. Remember, he said that earlier on, before the vision actually unfolded, before the veil parted. He said, God, just touch with thy finger these stones, and they will shine. He had enough faith that God could do that. But what he had seen spiritually, he then was able to see physically, as the Lord parted the veil and reached out with that finger. He couldn't be kept from seeing it, because he already had the veil did him no good. It was no longer necessary. So easily parted when that's the case. We sometimes use the phrase these days about, oh, I can't unsee that. Well, again, with the eye of faith, which then leads to seeing with the eye of flesh, the things beyond the veil can't be unseen. I can't unsee the finger of God because I've already seen it in faith. And now he sees it in fact which then expands the vision. We're ready to take another step here. Verse 21, after the brother of Jared had beheld the finger of the Lord, the second time, the first was with faith, the second was in fact, because of the promise which the brother of Jared had obtained by faith, the Lord could not withhold anything from his sight. Wherefore he showed him all things, for he could no longer be kept without the veil. He couldn't unsee anything. So what do we learn here? First picture, believe. Second picture, part the veil. See things as they really are. See them with the eye of faith so that eventually you will see them with the eye of fact. But your eyes will have been changed through that process. You will have an eye single to the glory of God. You'll have eyes so much more like the eyes of seers who can see things that otherwise could not be seen and make known things that otherwise could not be made known. Now in verse 22, we're reaching the end of the Faith Hall of Fame. We're near the exit here. One final display, he says, it is by faith that my fathers have obtained the promise that these things, he's referring to the Book of Mormon now, should come unto their brethren through the Gentiles. This is where it all comes together. His father's life work. The whole Hall of Fame has been leading up to this moment. All of these Book of Mormon prophets have had faith that someday their work would come forth. It would be worth it. It would make a difference for people eventually, even if people refused to allow it to make a difference during the lives of those prophets themselves. That's going to be especially important for someone like Moroni, who's not going to be able to see it happen in his day. But all those prophets, all those fathers of the faith had the faith that these things would eventually come forth. They obtained a promise from God that that would be the case. And God could not withhold that promise because their faith was so strong that they required it of him. That's the word that was used in the book of Enos. Near the end of his prayer, the final concentric circle, the one that's more all-inclusive now, Enos says, Knowing that the Lord God was able to preserve our records, I cried unto him continually, and I had faith. And I, Enos, knew it would be according to the covenant which he had made, wherefore my soul did rest. And then the Lord responds to him, 
thy fathers have also required of me this thing. Powerful verb. To require something of God. That's not us pulling rank on him. We have no rank to pull. What requires anything of God? Faith does. True faith. That that's the Father's will as well. Faith that parts the veil. Faith that allows us to come boldly to the throne of grace. Faith that forces God's hand to emerge. It could not be withheld them. Thy fathers have required of me this thing, and it shall be done unto them according to their faith. For their faith, Enos, was like unto thine. Such an incredible stockpile of faith heaped up by generation after generation of Book of Mormon prophet. These words have to come forth, Father, for the salvation of a ruined world. And it's in that moment that all of a sudden the Faith Hall of Fame becomes incredibly personal to its tour guide. Moroni all of a sudden realizes that at the end of this hallway, right next to the exit sign, is one more little alcove with a display that's still blank. One last installation yet to be filled. And Moroni in this verse realizes it's his. See how he ends verse 22? It started all about the Father's promises that God will eventually make sure that these words come forth unto the Gentiles so that the Gentiles can eventually bring them to the remnant of their seed. And then the verse ends. Therefore the Lord hath commanded me, yea, even Jesus Christ. And right there, it's like Moroni's like, whoa, wait a minute. You get a sense of what he's saying? All our ancestors put all their eggs in the restorations basket. They just knew. They had faith. They saw with that eye of faith that someday the Book of Mormon would come forth. And they believed. They required it of the Lord. They obtained his promise. The Book of Mormon will eventually come forth. And that's why the Lord has commanded me. <gasps> uh, right there, it's like Moroni is like, oh my goodness. I'm in this. Their faith is riding on my works. If I don't do my job, if I don't fulfill my part in this plan, then can God keep his promises? Will this book ever come forth? Will the Father's prayers be answered according to the promises God has made? This is why the Lord has commanded me to perform this work, to finalize my Father's life's work, to bury these plates, and I'm sure yet unbeknownst to him, to play the pivotal role in connecting that day to Joseph Smith's, making sure these words do eventually come forth. I love that Moroni sees himself here. It's the experience that each of us is supposed to have with this tour of the Faith Hall of Fame. We're supposed to see right before the exit that there is space for our exhibit as well. Will you and I ever be installed in that Hall of Fame? Will we believe first so that afterwards miracles can take place in our lives and the lives of those that we serve? Therefore, the Lord hath commanded us to do things too. And all of that to do will come because of our to believe, our faith in Jesus Christ.